brain itself is one massive dynamical system. So much of what we record in the brain is generated internally by nothing outside in the world. So we need to understand the separation between what's evoked by the world, what isn't, to be able to peel apart the two and go, no, this is this is what's happening inside, and that's what it means, that's what's happening outside. When I spin my brain forward a uh, hundred years into the future and go, what what will the explanations in neuroscience look like? Almost everything that we will understand at that point will just be from massive simulations. We we have great theories for about what does that leave us with? Three percent of neurons. I think so. We got. <laughs> Um, great theories of what they're doing. You only use 3% of your brain. And I think that's the new... Yeah. Great. <laughs> this is Brain Inspired. Hello, everyone. It's Paul. Today, I have Mark Humphreys back on. Mark runs his lab at University of Nottingham in the UK, which he describes as a neural data lab. That means they're more of a theoretical lab that uses computational models to analyze neural population data that's been recorded from other labs' experiments. So back on episode four, when Mark first appeared on the podcast, we talked about some of his work analyzing how the population of rat prefrontal cortex neurons relates to learning new rules in a behavioral task. He's written a book now, which is the main thing that we discuss today. Uh, The book is called The Spike, An Epic Journey Through the Brain in 2.1 Seconds. Just like the title says, it chronicles a couple seconds of brain activity of someone, um, and that someone happens to be in a meeting at work, and they see a cookie on the conference room table, and they think about reaching for it, and they finally reach for and get the cookie. Um, the, the premise of the book is the story of what it would be like to travel along with the action potentials happening in the brain during those couple seconds of cognition. And along the way, you learn where things get processed and how they get processed. Uh, you learn a lot about what we do know, some of the important principles discovered over the past 30 years or so. You learn a lot about what we don't know, so some of the big mysteries left uh, to solve, and what we think we may know. So theories about solving some of those mysteries. And we talk about just a few examples from each of those categories, but mainly focus on some of the bigger discoveries and questions that he writes about. Like we discussed, the book is aimed at a smart audience uh, that can pick up concepts, uh, but it doesn't assume that you know much or anything about brains to follow along. So you don't need to be a brain expert. It can be used as an introduction to a lot of these things. But if you are a brain expert, Uh, It still takes you to the modern challenges of neuroscience and puts those challenges in the context of uh, historical knowledge uh, and current knowledge. So show notes are at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 102-102. Thanks for listening. Happy reading, I hope. And here's Mark. So Mark, last time you were here, it was, I just checked, it was episode four. (laughs) So uh, welcome back. So we actually just chatted a couple weeks ago because you were included in this little 100th episode special uh, series that I did. And one of the things that you mentioned that has benefited your well-being uh, and career in the past five years has been this idea of writing down just one thing, uh, the most important thing to get done in a given day. And then the rest of the day you can use to you know, uh, get, get all the other scraps done. Uh, what, what was that one thing today? Well, precisely, it was prepare for this interview to be 
well, but so okay, was, <laughs> sure. I was like, scratch my head, but it was um, it was preparing it in a in a particular sense because obviously I finished the book about a year ago, so I had to go and reread quite a bit chunk of it to, to refresh my memory of exactly how I'd structured some parts of exactly what it what it said in various parts because the slow lead oh. time in, in academic publishing in, you know, in the publishing world compared to even journal publishing means that I haven't looked at some of this text for a year and a half. Uh, so it's yeah. so it's, it was um, it was great to go back and take a look at it with very fresh eyes and go okay that's that's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it actually does make sense. Yeah, that's always nice. How does that compare when you to like publishing a paper where you know once it's finally out in print or or online these days I suppose it's it's old news by that time but there's even a longer lag time for a book. But yeah, there is a long long time for the back. So it's it's been as I said it's. I handed in the final version back in March, end of March 2020, just as a sort of we went into lockdown, the pandemic broke big. That's when I was writing the last, all oh. uh, redraft of the last chapter. So that was that was challenging, but that was it was got done. So it's the reverse of a paper. So as you say, with the academic paper, it kind of just peters out. You you have all this huge energy and build up to the first submission of that paper. And then the revisions of that paper and rejections of that paper and resubmission and blah, 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 blah. blah. Um, and particularly now when we do it, we preprint all our papers. Um, most of the, the sort of the big oomph is gone because it's, it's there now. And you're just trying to push it through the door at a journal somewhere. Uh, and the book <laughs> is completely opposite. So it was, you know, it's written a year ago. It's been sat. And as it come up to release day on March 9th, it's just been the amount of things to do with the book has been escalating. So it's becoming, you know, it's a clearly an event. Uh, in a way that a paper release just isn't. Oh, there's also a bit more of a permanence uh, to because you know you, to a book because you you publish a paper and then it's kind of on to the next thing, but the book is is more of a statue, right? Where people can revisit and revisit a lot and sort of its own thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, indeed. So it's um, not least because it's kind of monolithic, where people aren't going to add much to it. Uh, it's a it's a standalone thing. It's also a bit like a. I know, it's been a message in a bottle too. It's just been thrown out there to float around the world. So hopefully people <laughs> pick it up and read it. Um, and they can read it as many times as they like. But it's, but it's not a, as you say, it's, um, it hasn't got the ephemeral nature of, the, of, a, of a paper. Some books obviously clearly are, have, are designed to be ephemeral too, right? So we have a, we have a sudden yeah. you know, bookshelf full of books about COVID-19 that in about five years' time will be of a purely, acad- purely academic yes. interest of what did people think at the time, which will be... I yeah. sure as hell hope so. <laughs> exactly that, yeah. That's a good, good caveat, yeah. Yeah. The other thing is that I wanted to ask about is, um, you know, blog writing, because, you know, you write the spike, and in a sense, I mean, it's, it's, there's almost like this model the, these days, and I don't know how writers used to do it, there's almost, it seems like a model these days where someone, you know, you, you write a blog, and then you kind of write a book from that, you know, like use like your blog post sort of as, as inspiration. I mean, some people just put their blog posts in a collection and call it a book, which is, that's a different thing. Um, but, you know, a lot of people in science, it seems, are doing this kind of model where you write these blog posts and then the ideas kind of coalesce and then you, you realize that it can be a book maybe. I don't know. Is, is that, uh, that's a question actually. I'm wondering if that's the case, like how the, the blog writing interacted with the book writing. To be fair, we, initially when we were discussing projects with my, with my agent, uh, I would just flow with the idea of do we do some kind of collection thing? And it's sort of no, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. It needs to be a book. So it needs to be a first. A first book needs to be a thing that's really you know really makes a statement about what your position on the world as much as anything. Right? It's a bit sort of uh-huh. 
you know, sort of essay books of essays and stuff are further down the line and established you know, mature authors type of thing where people will be interested in reading what you your thoughts. Um, so for me, as it turned out, the the idea I had for the book I had more or less before I started writing the blog. So clearly, as it turned out, the, the blog was a place where I, I ended up rehearsing a number of the ideas ended up in the book. But the idea of the, the book yeah. and the structure was something I'd had a uh, like a year or two before I started the blog. Just this idea of this notion of what's it like to be a spike. If I look at the spike's perspective on the world, um, coming from neuron to neuron, what, what do I see? And that's that's where that, that came from. This is very – you talk in the book uh, in the beginning – maybe in the preface about having written since you were, you know, a kid or, or started a thousand manuscripts or a thousand stories. And that comes across uh, in the book. It's very story-like. And the, the point of view of the, of the spike <laughs> reminded me of this. I'm sure you haven't seen this. It's an American film. It's called Inner Space. It's from the late 80s. Oh, Dennis Quaid? Oh my gosh, yeah. you know it. Yeah. So in this movie, like the, he's a pilot, Dennis Quaid is, and he gets shrunken down and accidentally injected into martin short and then all sorts of hilarity ensues but i mean it's him like from the perspective of a, of a very miniature person going through martin short's body and interacting with his body and this kind of made me think of that your, your book thinking of uh traversing the brain as a spike you know riding on a spike uh kind of made me think of that so uh, that's interesting that you actually know that movie <laughs> yeah yeah no and it's and it's yeah, it's riffed on on a lot of British TV shows, actually, even the uh, kids' cartoon called Danger Man. I didn't realize it was a classic. Apparently, well, apparently all the creatives in the in in television grew up watching <laughs> watching that film. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. That's um, that is kind of exactly that's good because that's exactly what I was aiming for, right? To get the read of the feel of they were uh, with essentially with me as well. Um, both of us were with the following the spike through its through its journey through the through the through the brain. So that yes, yeah, so the book was structured as a journey. So that unfolded as we follow this spike from the eyeball through all the various complex processing centers of the brain to the part where it controls the arm to move the hand to the thing it's doing. And so that journey allowed me to both then like slowly unpack as we travel the various aspects of what it means to be a spike, how you create one, why we have them. Um, so that's like the basic understanding in the first at the start, and then the journey as we go through the brain also opens up into more and more complex ideas of of uh, how spikes work, how the brain works using them, and the, you know, how it's used in decision-making and memory and all kinds of things. So it's, it was meant to be a, a journey in two senses, of through the brain and also as the, every chapter is a new set of more ideas that build on the last and it, it gets bigger and bigger. And it's all with the, uh, the, the premise of someone in a, like a meeting in an office and uh, looking consi- considering whether to reach and grab a delicious cookie and and throughout you come back to the you know what's going on in the office with Barbara or Pam or someone but you know moving to the left and, and stuff and then relating it back to what's going on in the brain so it's um it's so it's a it's a fun read uh, in that sense as well and the language that you use you can tell like you have a it sounds like you're having a good time when you're writing it anyway and coming up with the many metaphors that you use in the book and it is interesting because it my question that I'm about to ask is who the book is for because it starts uh fairly basic i would say you know like how, how spikes kind of are, are generated and some of the nuts and bolts of just a spike and what it does and how it moves through the brain and then as you go on and on in the book like you just mentioned um the story becomes more complex and you start to bring all of the uh gory details and the things surrounding what's happening decision making predictive coding things like higher level concepts right 
Um, so there's a real trajectory in the book, I, I feel like. So I'm wondering who might benefit the most, you think, from, from reading the book? So I was ambitious and I, I aimed at a lot of people. So I took the approach to the sort of sort of the classic advice of writing a popular science book of assume your audience is intelligent but doesn't know the information. I, I so I decided to yeah so as you say build from the ground up. So um, so once you grasp that the spike is this voltage signal that is sent by a neuron to another neuron, whenever it gets enough inputs, it's a it's a, it's a signal that says okay something important has happened now. I'm going to send a bit of information, and from knowing that. Having really embedded that, spending whole like a whole chapter really making sure that that is embedded in the in the reader's head, and you can use that as a platform to slowly build out on out on out. So it's it's um, obviously it's for a very general audience, but I had particular audiences in mind. So I wanted to write it so that it was of interest for our AI and neural network audience. We wanted to understand more about what we know about brains to see if anything useful was going to be in there. So you know, I, I, throughout the book, I touch back on ideas from from AI and neural networks, and occasionally contrast. Mm-hmm. The bit we're talking about about the brain, about how neural networks work, um, to the extent that I understand they work. <laughs> and uh, but in particular, there is you know because this is all about spikes. It's the domain of systems neuroscience, so the bits of neuroscience where people recall from lots of neurons at the same time. And of course, there's whole areas of research uh, fields where people are interested in this kind of stuff, but have no way of getting into literature itself. Right? So also, it's in yeah. one respect, yeah. it's for an enormous audience of clinicians and. Um, of, of medical people and people who work on molecular stuff and people who work on, you know, um, anything that ever touches on brains who won't have a chance to actually de- delve into the literature, this is like a one-stop shop for saying, this is all the cool stuff we know about how brains use spikes to do stuff. Yeah. Nice. And, it was, and I was also interested, so I've had, uh, I actually gave it to Ashley Javanet to, to have a read. She's a associate professor at UCSD who specializes in teaching neuroscience. Because um, interested in how it would work, as you know, if you gave out this to an undergraduate course, mm-hmm. would they, you know, be able to run with it as a supplement to like looking at the technical details and really understanding how it fits together? Because they can, you know, as a framework. So I was also keen to, you know, as 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 people as a gateway into neuroscience, this would also work as a book. So it's, yeah, so I had ambitions for <laughs> a number of audiences. I can definitely see how people could go back to it, and every time they go back to it, depending on their level of. Uh, interest and expertise. I mean, you, you can get kind of what you want out of the different levels from it. So that that's an interesting, that's an interesting take. I also just I, I find that I and I don't know if you're the same way. I don't mind reading about the stuff that I know about. It's always from a slightly different angle, and it always depending on how it's written and what else is incorporated. Uh, it makes you think of new things, which your book does. And you, you saying that uh, you sent it to uh, UCSD to a, an American audience because I. I was amused by the uh, the British lingo that you used in there that that uh, made me stop and think, wow, you really are going for like a lot of the assuming that we'll all be along with the British lingo. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> one thing that struck me also is that the book is, so you talk a little bit about behavior and decision making, but it's really brain centric in that you're really describing the brain as an interesting thing in itself. And it made me wonder about your particular interests, um, and this is kind of outside the book, I suppose, just just asking you out of my curiosity, because the brain is interesting in itself. You know, if you had to describe your main interest and what you're most um, interested in, you know, explaining and, and learning about, is it the brain in itself and its workings, or is it the relation between brain and mind, or where would you put yourself in that camp? Yeah, I guess I, I put myself in that, so I, I clearly draw more towards the... I, trying to understand the brain's internal dynamics 
obviously to make sense of them we always have to link them to the outside world so all our pretty much all our papers are, are on this so talk about behavior in some way whether it's literally just movement movement of a sea slug or movement of an arm or whether it's decision making behavior but the core is about understanding how essentially how groups of neurons do what they do together so once you get beyond the sort of the single neuron fires because this thing happens in the world framework when we get look at you know, populations of neurons um, that's where we're interested in both the terms of what they're what we can read out from there what they're coding and, and their sort of the dynamics that they create this is probably due to the uh, types of hooligans that I digitally hang out with these days, but it feels like there's a, uh, you know, a backlash against studying these types of things for their own sake, right? So like population dynamics in neurons without considering behavior as a an overall overarching top-down, I won't say constraint, but uh, inspiration for how to think about uh, neural activity as as being explanatory, right? Do you feel Do you feel that? at all uh because there, you know obviously no one no one says that there's anything wrong with studying the brain for itself just because it's a you know fascinating super super complex entity right so just understanding like how it goes about doing anything is is an interesting topic in itself but do you feel the pressure of uh this needs to be related to behavior as a fundamental thing if you i think you're right at the moment there is it in particularly in terms of the areas of neuroscience that record neurons activity, there is a big push at the moment from various people to push this emphasis of going, always think about the behavior and on now further on, you know, more um, ecologically valid types of behavior or making sure that the animal is doing something that's vaguely relevant to what it's supposed to be doing. Right. Um, But as ever, neuroscience, like all sciences is cyclical, right? It has fashions that come and go. So the last time this was a big, push was i mean there in the in the mid 80s there was this huge outcry about neuroscience needing behavior you can pull out a number of review papers and opinion pieces which says yes we're getting too far from this sort of behavior perspective because we've we followed human and visa we've stuck an electrode into our into our neuron and we've watched it fire when we've shown it something and then we've gone a neuron up and we've gone a neuron up and gone a neuron up we're just recording lots of neurons now we've just got lots of spikes that's great um but yeah. we're not doing anything with them <laughs> so you have this push to go back to behavior so, and then we go for the behavior section, and then sort of um, in the sort of late '90s, the push in sort of theory, at least, was to go for a lot. Of, was a split between people looking starting to understand this population coding idea, and then people who are really interested in um, the details of a single neuron. So, building these incredibly detailed models, the compartmental models of individual neuron, where each dendrite is modeled by a whole bunch of different sections stuck together. So, you need a supercomputer just to run one neuron. And that took over for a while and that phase, and I've no doubt that will come back again in 10 years' time um, as a next push. So it's it's true that at the moment there's a little bit of there's a little bit more emphasis on the need for behavior. But as you say, the brain itself is one massive dynamical system. So much of what we record in the brain is generated internally by nothing outside in the world. Mm. So we need to understand the separation between what's evoked by the world and what isn't. And to understand what isn't, we need to understand what is how the circuits of the brain are doing, generating all this activity, and what forms it can take to be able to peel apart the two and go, no, this is this is what's happening inside, and that's what it means. That's what's happening outside. So before we jump into the some of the topics in the book and and how they, you know, may or may not be related to AI as well, given how complex the brain is itself and how complex behavior is, and we'll you know, I don't know how to talk about how complex mind is, we'll just call it very complex as well. Do you think that an eventual 
satisfying explanation of the brain and mind uh, linkage of, of how the brain is related to mind uh, and, and the characteristics between them. Do you think that that's going to feel intuitively right? Or do you think that we're going to have to eventually accept, you know, that we can't quite, quite grasp, can't quite grasp it in an abstract sense, you know, like these days. So we're you know, like, like you were just talking about from the single neuron perspective, you can build these computational models. You kind of feel like you have some idea of the canonical computation, right? That some single neuron might be contributing to. And now we're getting to these larger populations. We're having to talk about dynamical systems and state spaces, and the terms are becoming more and more abstract. Do you think that we're going to maintain an intuitive grasp of of the explanation of how brain and mind are, are connected? Sadly, no. So, <laughs> And you're comfortable with that. It sounds like you're comfortable with that. Well, <laughs> I, I think um, um, comfortable. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm I know I'm, I'm resolved to that. that resolved, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah, it's so because on one hand, so our, our explanations of mind are all psychology, right? We 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 talk about memory of various forms about of uh, you know of perception, um, but those of course are that's getting too philosophical. There's called semantic labels that we give to our own internal experience. There's no need that anything in the brain actually maps directly onto the things that we call you know short-term memory, working memory, episodic memory. Sadness. So, yeah, that these these are uh, labels we give. So the the mapping from mind to brain is going to be quite uh, quite awkward in places. I think. <laughs> I think that's a good word. Awkward. <laughs> it means that then when we have a we have a, if we ever end up with an explanation of the brain beyond some kind of general principles which we all agree are in play, then it's going to be fairly unintuitive. Yes, I think it's that's inevitable. I mean, secretly. Not so secret. I'm about to tell you. Um, the, the, uh, for me, when I spin my brain forward a uh, you know, hundred years into the future and go, what, what will the explanations in neuroscience look like? Mostly, I'm left with looking at the fact that almost everything that we will understand at that point will just be from massive simulations, because um, mm. we have we just look at other fields that deal with with systems of comparable complexity. So we look at the weather and climate modeling, and they don't even try yeah. to understand their thing in an intuitive sense. They have a toy model in your head of what might happen if this happens in a short space of time, but on a longer time scale, um, you have to run a simulation. And those simulations are all probabilistic, right? So you start different conditions and you get a range of, of outcomes. So if we want to understand how some treatment for Parkinson's will affect the brain, uh, maybe trying to try and target a particular set of neurons, so we're going to end up with some kind of in silico platform where we mm. do that run it, run it from various configurations and get a range of outcomes that will that will be predicted. Um, not satisfying, but <laughs> but science doesn't is under no no constraint to give us any satisfying answers. <laughs> yeah, I mean the complexity and, and weather prediction makes me I should have a climatologist on or or a um what's the weatherman called? A uh, Me- meteorologist. Yeah. yeah. I should have a meteorologist on and ask them how satisfied they are with you know, having to run the simulations and how intuitive it all feels. Because eventually, these things that makes no sense kind of, well, I think you, you use the word resolve. And I think that's, I think that's right. That the, you, you kind of give up and you get so used to it that it, it starts to feel intuitive, even though when you actually examine it, that makes no sense at all for it to feel intuitive. And maybe that's what's going to happen. So I think we're going to, as I said, sort of said, I think we're going to have a, end up with a last set of re- agreed upon principles that we know the brain works by. And we're going to understand some of the 
algorithms that it uses to get from A to B, right? Particularly algorithms for learning, for uh, for creating memories, what things it prioritizes, and so on. But those are going to be elements of a of a complete picture, right? So if we stick them all together, we're going to need some kind of uh, no, no doubt, some kind of simulation. In the same way that for for weather forecasting and for climate modeling, they know the physics extremely well. But the physics is extraordinarily well known. How sure. all the, the equations? The problem is that you can't put them all together into into your brain. You have to um, stick them on a supercomputer and, and run them to find out exactly how they interact. When I spin my brain forward, though, I and I'm sorry, I'm this is a you know kind of a long tangent. But when I spin spin my brain forward, I have this kind of wager in my head or. It seems likely to me that there's still a long way to go with the neuroscience, with characterizing how to understand neural activity, populations of activity, the dynamics between areas and how they communicate and the different motifs, right, of computation and processing. I feel like there's a lot more of that to discover that will that will be useful getting toward that final place where we're resolved to, you know, there's a gap and we're, and it's fine because there's a loose mapping. Uh, it's not, it will never be like isomorphic. It'll never be one-to-one, but you know, the principles, I think, I, I feel like the neuroscience has a lot farther to go to contribute to the principles that will eventually, uh, be our explanatory resolution, you know, as opposed to coming from the other side, from the psychology side. I mean, so yeah, obviously I agree that we have much to discover in neuroscience about what the particular <laughs> principles in, in the vertebrate in the vertebrate brain. We have a lot of things to to, to resolve of um, of because we only we only really spent the last what twenty years routinely recording from more one, one neuron at once. So we have yeah. we're basically at the beginning of uncharted territory, and we have a well basically a first paper in Nature a few weeks ago from Matteo Carandini's lab where they finally imaged a uh, hundred or so inputs to a single neuron. So mm. that kind of level of detail is this kind of thing where we need to understand properly how neurons talk to each other because we need to look at um, what the inputs to each neuron are. Uh, so yeah, so there's going to be this, these, these a lot more, as you say, a lot more of these principles to come up. A lot of these principles are going to be about, they're going to be about dynamics, right? They're going to be about principles of wiring, of how particular neurons connect to others to create different forms of dynamics. And so we're going to know a lot, a lot about the sort of canonical circuitry of the brain but we're not going to know a lot about particularly how that maps back up into these higher cognitive sort of ideas, not least because we have to do all our experiments in animals, which we can't mm. get them to internally tell us that I had a memory of this. We have to infer from you know sustained activity prefrontal cortex that that is a memory uh, because if you perturb it, then it, memory seems to go away. But that is, that, you know, but it's us just labeling it a memory rather than whatever the brain is using it as. Lots and lots of levels. It's uh, it's just this is why I do what I do. It's just fun. It's fun to think about and talk about. So, all right, let, let's talk about uh, the book. And um, the questions that I that I have for you come from generally from kind of later mid to later in the book. And I'm skipping over like the uh, a bunch of the introductory stuff that talks about you know the generations of spikes and you know the 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 role of you know non spiking activity in the retina i mean it literally goes from you know photons the book goes from photons in the environment hitting the retina how that's processed and and then traverses through the entire mostly visual uh, areas of the brain to a motor action as you've already said here but the first thing maybe i want to ask you about is um and i picked out a few things just specifically so that we could kind of compare them like you do in the book to uh what we know and what is being used in in in, a, in ai um, and the first of those is just the randomness of of spiking. So 
uh, it's well established now that spiking is a random process. And you ask in the book how that can be the case. And, and one of the things that you point out is the excitation inhibition uh, balance coming into a spike as uh, all the voltages are getting added up from the excitation and inhibition um, and to eventually produce a spike. So maybe you could just say a few words about the importance and the role of excitation and and inhibition and maybe how it differs, (laughs) obviously, from AI. Yeah, sure. So so as I I sort of outlined in the book, um, this is one of the lovely sort of clear detective stories in, in neuroscience of how people uncovered this idea of excitation inhibition balance. As you say, it had long been observed that the spikes coming out of individual cortical neurons appear to be essentially random, that the gaps between them were uh, gap following a single spike was either short or long and it seemed to have no relationship to the previously whether it was short or long. So essentially, they were being, it appears to be a random series of spikes in time. And that, when you've got a models of neurons, that, that seems to be impossible because uh, when you give and model neuron lots of inputs, its outputs are really regular, no matter how random its inputs. And I explain why in the book. It's a nice diagram. It shows this much more intuitively than I can say it in words. Right. So the solution, one of the solutions, so there are many solutions to this problem of how you get uh, irregular outputs from a single neuron. And one of the key ones that were hit on early, I think uh, there was a review paper by Mike Shadlin and Newsom who floated the idea in words and it was put into models to test it, was that if you have a neuron whose Excitatory inputs and inhibitory inputs were basically cancelling each other on average. Um, then the voltage of the neuron itself, as those inputs kept bombarding it, they would, they would be all random, but the total amount of inhibition excitation would be roughly the same. So then it would be fluctuating back and forth as it up when it got excitation and down as it got some inhibition. And eventually there'd be by, at random, a tiny little burst of excitation would suddenly overcome all the inhibition and a spike would appear because the neuron the neuron's voltage would reach its threshold for making a spike. And that creates this this irregular output spike train. So it's nice and easy to show that that would happen in a single model neuron. And the real breakthrough was showing that if you put neurons in a network and you basically balanced out the, the number and strength of the excitation inhibition connections within the network, so on average it was balanced across the network, then the network would self-generate irregular spike trains. And it would do that because essentially um, it was it would it's on a massive feedback system for itself. So you had too much in excitation coming out of the, of the excitatory neurons, then that means they would drive the inhibitory neurons to create too much inhibition, which would drive them down. And so the excitation inhibition would, count, would balance itself out. So that means that, that in, the, so in the brain, we have this, this apparent, particularly in cortex, we have this beautiful balancing act going on, which means that the, it's something then that the outputs of each individual neuron are not, heavily driven by a particular set of inputs that they are driven instead by this ongoing barrage coming into them from both excitatory and inhibitory sources. So they don't necessarily reflect, obviously, something that a clear, clear labeled line which says this input means, you know, a line of 90, uh, 180 degrees or a, a particular tone right now because the timing of that spike uh, isn't under the, only under the control of the whatever the external stimulus is. A couple important things also to note. I mean, it's not like um, there's a positive, there's an electron or an anti-electron or something. You know, it's it's not like excit- excitatory input and inhibitory input are of the same ilk, right? So they're they're very different because you have these you have a lot more excitatory input numbers, right, uh, of axons impinging on the dendrites, but uh, and fewer inhibitory 
inputs, but those inhibitory inputs are firing higher, for one thing. So that's one way that they balance it. And also their, their, the strength of their effectivity, um, their, you could call it their synaptic um, effectiveness, efficacy, uh, is higher than the excitatory input. So this gives rise to this ability to have a lot of these uh, voltage fluctuations within that balance, overall averaged balanced scheme, correct? Right. So looking at a sort of slightly network level, yes, that network level, you have many more excitatory neurons and you have inhibitory neurons. So in cortex, the balance in the mouse cortex balance is roughly sort of 80-85% excitatory neurons, 15% inhibitory neurons. But as you say, then they are, um, those inhibitory neurons are giving out uh, many more connections. So they connect to many more sort of many, many more neurons, which means that individual neurons receive quite a number of inhibitory, in, inhibitory inputs. And even though they then may be fewer in number, the excitatory ones, they are stronger. And then they also, the inhibitory inputs, struggling with this phrase, inhibitory inputs, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. um, uh, tend, to, tend to arrive at the neuron's body, whereas the excitatory inputs tend to arrive in the, up in the dendrites. So which means that they are able to have a more powerful effect on directly on the neuron's voltage than are the, the many thousands of excitatory inputs out in its dendrites. But then that also means that locally inside the dendrites then that so for example there is a particular interneuron in cortex which projects its axon just up into the far top of the dendrites of the parameter cells in cortex and that appears to be specifically to be able to regulate the excitatory inputs in particular parts of the dendrite so that you have this that tug of war between inhibition and excitation happening in local little parts of the dendrite as well as globally controlling the output of the neuron and one reason you might want to do that is because we know that when up in these far regions of these dendrites, when you get these big clusters of excitatory inputs firing together, you get this kind of spike-like thing happening in the dendrite, this big nonlinear jump up in the dendrite, which then flows rapidly down to the body and can itself cause a spike to be sent down the axon. So you want inhibition up there to be controlling this process too, which it appears to be doing. Mm-hmm. And then that means that obviously played out then across all the very big dendritic branches of, all, of one of the parameter cells, you have these lots of little different regions which are essentially um, acting independently with this independent excitation inhibition balance going on in each of them, potentially each of them sending spikes down to the down to the neuron's body. So you end up with this really complex computational device inside this individual neuron of which the readout spike is just the readout of this uh, very complicated interaction within the dendrites between excitation inhibition. I think we talked about this the first time you're on the show that um, that in that sense every neuron is is like a a little neural network in itself. Yeah, so there is exactly so there is um, some lovely modeling work showing that yeah when you build a single model neuron that then has little compartments as we've discussed before where each, each compartment gets a little inhibition excitation to it it's formally equivalent in many respects to a two layer neural network and indeed we can show. Um, if you've got any of these kind of non-linearities, this kind of spike that appears in the in the dendrite um, with many excitatory inputs, as long as you have one bit of dendrite that has that and other linear bits of dendrite, you open up this whole class of computable functions that was impossible if you have purely sort of an add-up and sum device happening. Mm-hmm. And obviously, yes, and normally to do that in a really compact space, so a single neuron obviously is a very tiny thing. So being able to do all this computation locally means you don't have to have all have this computation spread out amongst um, thousands of neurons and hidden layers in a neural network. So then, then like zooming out, even on the interneuron level between neurons and, and among populations at the neuron level, 
um, this excitation and inhibition property in mass gives rise to, and, and because of the different types of excitation and inhibition, the different properties of those inputs gives rise magically. Oh, I said magically, uh, emergently, let's say, let's take the magic away, to self-organization and ongoing dynamics within a population. So it's this nice uh, uh, property that these lower level characteristics give rise to. Yeah, right. So so as we sort of touched on then, because this this is, yeah, so, so this is a single neuron uh, uh, property of this, this excitation inhibition balance it explains the irregularity of a single neuron. And then when you take these excitatory neurons and inhibitory neurons and wire them together in a network because then they are they provide each other's excitation and inhibition they are then self-balancing so you over quite a robust range of ways of wiring up these networks you would always get this irregular spiking you always get this um, ability to for inhibition to balance excitation one thing though touch point your sort of your question of what we we lack a good knowledge of in neuroscience is how this complex dendritic computation actually contributes to the network level dynamics. There's almost no one looking at that level, partly because building the models that are that complex for the individual neurons and then wiring them into a network is incredibly computationally expensive. Yeah. So you have to have access to some kind of you know, IBM blue gene scale supercomputer to run them properly. So people have built models of cortex on this scale, of course. So you've got the, you know, the Blue Brain Project, and uh, similarly, there's a the team in, in Sweden uh, who also have a blue gene supercomputer that are building cortical models. But as, as of yet, no one's really done a good exploration of what dendritic computation adds to the network dynamics. These two things are still fairly treated fairly separately. And what's your, what's your sense? Is it a, a subtle context sort of um, information that it adds, what, what, if you had to guess? It's a good question. Yeah. This way. We've got to be speculative sometimes yes. on the show. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. Actually, I'm really not sure what it has. So we've done, we've done a bunch of work on what the individual neuron computations would be with these nonlinear dendrites. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you scale it up, essentially it means that you, I think one of the things it's going to let you to do is it allows you to access by, by putting together relative, so relatively um, simple neurons that be able to do something non-linear that you can open up this whole class of functions you can compute that you would otherwise need extremely complex or dense neural network to to like multiplexing sort of yeah either that yeah either that that, that you're you're allowing it to, to instantiate many functions at once um in the same network all that in a simple obviously because most of your brain networks are recurrent in some way that what you're letting it do is is um Mm-hmm. is allowing some kind of rec- recurrent computations as it's passing back through these functions over and over again. Historical context, yeah. Yeah, just to build very complex, instead of just a simple, you know, y equals f of x function, something that's really deeply recursive is being built by being passed constantly through these dendrites and spat back out as a spike. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much complexity and so much fine detail, and it's hard to know, you know, <laughs> what's important, uh, you know, as as you move up in scale, in size, right? And, and in computation. <laughs> Does any of this matter for, for AI, for instance, or, or all these types of things, and we're going to talk about plenty more, things that we can just abstract away? I mean, there are people like Blake Richards and, and many others who are working on um, using the, the variation in dendritic uh, compartments and, you know, different electrical properties of the different types of dendrites, for instance, to be able to compute things like feedback 
information, predictive information, and and actually trying to use these models that you say you know are super super compute heavy to make anything large. But it you know, whereas like when when you think of like a neural network, you think it's just a dumb little node that adds puts a little sigmoidal function and spits something out. And it's just, there's such a vast difference functionally between that and, and the complexity of neurons. And when you get down to that sub neuron level with the location of the dendrite, when an input's coming in, how close it is to other inputs, whether it's excitation inhibition and all that variety that can happen. I mean, it's mind boggling. Does it matter for, for, (laughs) you know, for building it, for building intelligent systems? That's a key question, isn't it? So, (laughs) So, so one point of view of course is that is that maybe it doesn't right. So one one point of view of why deep neural networks are so successful is because they essentially they replicate um, they replicate by just adding many 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 layers. Uh, yeah. The process that's happening in a handful of neurons. Right? So we only need you know for our object recognition system only needs essentially four layers of neurons, well maybe five depending on which object you're recognizing. But a deep neural network, you know, fifteen, twenty, however many layers you're putting on that convolutional network at the start. One 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 point of view would be that that simply that really deep network is just replicating the many stages of processing that in a in the brain are collapsed into um, a handful of neurons. Each neuron is doing a job of multiple layers in that network. But as you say, the uh, a neural network is a it's a pretty static device, right? You it's it's mm. you just add up its inputs, you spit it out of a sigmoid, you pass it to the next layer, you pass it to the next layer, uh, which lacks any sense of timing. So much of what we know about how the brain computes in clever ways is about timing. Yeah. So a lot yeah. of the dendritic computation stuff is about how dendritic computation can be used to um, get really specific timing effects. So, for example, uh, I'll give an example in the book of coincidence detection of the sound coming from the two ears, the spikes arriving at a particular neuron somewhere in the midbrain will happen to arrive at the same time because they're delayed with respect to each other they arrive at the same time in the dendrite, they cause that neuron to spike. And that spike means that there is something at, say, 20 degrees in front of you in the world. Because that, that neuron, that particular neuron stands for, when those two spikes arrive from the left and right ear together, that means that thing is at, the 20, is at 20 degrees, and have, those sounds will have arrived slightly far, far apart in the two ears. So that and sort of the more general ideas of coincidence detection in, in cortex of just this, um, when we want to, you know, know the sequence of events or bind things together that when spikes arrive in the dendrites, when they arrive one after the other immediately or arrive together, that gives different information. So obviously a lot of the computations in the, in the dendrites and particularly in the synapses as well with like things like um, short-term plasticity where it matters where all of the spikes come in as whether you get a, an increase or a decrease in the strength of the synapse. They seem to be about time effects and they're all completely missing from, from AI. I think that's going to be a recurring problem in AI, uh, just guessing, just Timing at all levels, you can imagine, I mean, just zooming out as far as you can, you can imagine a, uh, you know, if you're interacting with a person or an AI or something and they move, you know, a thousand times slower than that, you wouldn't call that intelligent behavior. So there's some threshold, right, where timing is important for us even to consider something, uh, uh, a an intelligent process. I mean, if you zoom way out, you could look at the Earth itself as an intelligent process, but it's going way too damn slow for us to consider it uh, what we would consider an intelligent process, right? Right. right. And, and like you said, I mean, it, time just gets completely ignored in the vast, vast majority of AI because it is a static thing where you, it's just a functional thing, input, function, output. And it does the thing, it categorizes the thing, but it doesn't matter how fast it does it. It doesn't matter 
the timing that it does anything with respect to anything else, you know, if you want to talk about, um, you know, the, the uh, generalizability, you would need all these processes working together in harmony dynamically. Uh, I don't know. I'm, now I'm just off the deep end here. But, <laughs> but this goes also back to another thing that you write about in your book that seems at odds with our intuition is that spiking is a relatively rare phenomenon, right? So you have, you talk about in the book how, you know, you have like 10 to the fourth inputs on average to every neuron, right? Uh, or, re- yeah. yeah. And given all that input, you would imagine the neuron would just be going wild all the time. But in fact, uh, spikes are rare. And, and, you know, it's not that that signals aren't being uh, delivered to the neuron. It's just that those signals are being averaged out um, and or for whatever reason, don't add up to a spike. It takes a lot to add up to a spike in a neuron. And you call that spike failure uh, in, in the book. And you talk about why that might be good. You give a few reasons. Would you mind just talking about some of the reasons why it might be good for a spike to, to fail? Yeah, sure. That was the chapter I had most fun writing. I'd say. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, I'm long been fascinated by spike failure because it's such a paradoxical idea. So particularly this, this synaptic failure problem where most synapses in cortex and hippocampus and amygdala and so on, there is a failure rate of about on average 75%. So every, for every, every spike that turns up with those synapses, about 75% of them will not cause a response on the other side. They'll simply not release the vesicle, the bags of transmitter won't go across the other side. They won't lock in the other side. No voltage will be transmitted at all. Some of the, some of those estimates you talk about get up to ninety percent failure rate. Yeah, so know? there are so reports of yeah in hippocampus reports come up to ninety percent. So so you know only ten percent of spikes are doing anything. What a waste! Exactly, <laughs> and as you say, it appears to be nonsense because spikes are ext- metabolically extremely expensive to produce. They you know the the sort of estimates of how much energy they use on your moment to moment energy basis is about in your brain is about like about forty six percent of all the energy that your neurons are using is just to produce the spikes. So why would you use all that energy and have them fail is kind of bizarre. These kind of paradoxes fascinate theorists, right? You know, why why is the brain doing this to itself? There must be a fabulously good reason for it. Yeah, I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a reason why it's good for um, for an individual neuron to have its inputs fail. So Livian Baxter had this idea that what it's, each neuron is trying to do is it's trying to actually make the most efficient use of its, of its own energy when it's producing its spikes. So its output along its axon has a maximum rate it can send information. So, you know, typically what we call an, you know, some kind of active cortical neuron when we used to just lower a single electrode in blind into cortex and find a neuron, that would be firing at 10 spikes per second. Brrr. Yeah, exactly. And that's considered a really active neuron. But of course, that's still a fairly low rate of information that's being transmitted by that single neuron or sort of if all of its inputs were active, all of those 10 to the 4 inputs were active, then the input rate on the information rate on the inputs would be three or four orders of magnitude bigger than it could output. So all this information coming in is just wasted. So their idea is that synaptic failure is there specifically so that it matches the output information rate to the input information rate. Mm. So the input is throttled back to the point where it can make absolute maximum use of its output without wasting all this energy on having all this voltage go up and down because of these inputs that it has no way of making use of. So that's So that's one really neat sort of way of thinking about static failure that ties together what a neuron is trying to achieve, which is to mm. maximize its own output while making sure it spends, it optimizes energy usage at the same time. And then there's, uh, then it's all, I also speculate on a few reasons that I haven't been, haven't been as well sort of researched yet about why it might be good for the brain as a whole for static failure to be in play. 
So one of those might be, as we touched on briefly, about methods of generalizing. So we know that uh, when we are learning stuff, or when we're learning, we don't, like when neural networks are learning a, an image classification task, showing many, 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 many images, and any problem with, with learning from many examples is overfitting. Right? So we're going to just learn about some kind of detail in the thing that we're looking at, which isn't relevant to the actual, you know, what we're supposed to be looking at. Like horses are always in fields, and we might categorize it as a horse if there's a field in the background or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, there are various solutions to that in the, in the neural network field, one of which is drop connect, which is basically the idea, of course, that every time you show a batch of images, you have dropped out a set of the connections in that network. So every batch, you essentially, the, the batch is being shown to a different subset of the network you started with as though it was being trained on a different network. And then when you test it, of course, you show it a new picture, you've put all those connections back in, and it hasn't overlearned because you haven't had the same connections learning over and over and over again that, you know, as you say, it's always a field. So it's going to pick up more, hopefully, more the idea of, of horse. And drop connect basically just is synaptic failure. It's this idea, so the brain, it appears a fairly logical idea then that the brain, one reason for the brain having synaptic failure then is that it enables it to learn without, to be able to generalize well without overfitting to particular details. That obviously every time you images are flowing in, you're not having, it means that the connections between particular neurons because of the failure are not rock solid. They're not always being the same ones firing a spike down from this neuron to this neuron to this neuron to this neuron. They're constantly dropping out at random while the world is going past you. So it would seem a logical idea to pursue that one of the reasons the brain has the synaptic failure is so that it's better at generalizing than if it was this fixed series of connections that always fired every time you gave it an input. And that's one one way in that, um, and we'll, we'll get on in a little bit to the, the topic of noise in the brain and variability, but I mean, that is essentially variability playing a positive role then if this intrinsic variability of sometimes allowing spikes to pass through and and sometimes not. I mean, it doesn't work out. It doesn't work just like drop out in real brains. Um, or you, you call it drop connect. And I, didn't, I don't think I'd ever heard that. It's, it's the same as drop out, right? So there's two versions. Right? So drop out is literally dropping the nodes. Yeah. Um, but drop connect is, is dropping out individual weights instead. So you're leaving all the nodes, all the nodes units intact, but they're dropping out the weights. So there, so all the new, all the nodes, all the all the uh, neurons yeah. are still on, but you're just uh, removing the connections between some subset, some subset of them. Yeah. So basically, you put a mask over a random gotcha. mask over the weights, uh, the weight oh. matrix, basically, and you just okay. randomize the mask every sort of batch. And this is those being trained on a different network each time, but of course, it's actually the same one. They're connected together ultimately underneath. So you take the mask off, and it has learnt the image classification you've given it, but not hopefully not. Uh, overgeneralized to the features that are specific that are not the thing you're supposed to be learning. Yeah, so it's a so it's one of the many ways that in AI the term is called regularization, where these different various strategies to not overfit, to not um, categorize something as a horse just because there's a field in the background. So that was a, that was a few reasons why spiking is rare. Is there anything to add? I mean, did we miss anything about the rarity of spiking and spike failure being a good thing there? So the rarity of spiking, I don't. Well, it ties into the. That's sort of the whole whole dark neuron section I talk let's about. Do you want to ask a question about that? Yeah, yeah. let's yeah. talk about dark neurons, which is one of the one of the, to me like one of the, one of the more exciting things about you know in, that you write about in the book. Yeah, so what are dark neurons, and and why do brains have them? Yeah, so dark neurons are the fact that uh, in any given moment in time, most neurons in your brain won't be firing a spike. So, although we can say that in a primate brain 
the neurons in your cortex on average fire one spike per second. Actually, most of those spikes are fired by a handful of neurons. So when we do some detailed recordings, we can see that about half of all spikes that are fired are fired by 10% of the neurons. That's, hang on, let, let's just pause there because that's crazy, right? So I just want to pause just to just to make sure that sinks in because, you know, as someone who recorded um, neurons in uh, the brain from an awake behaving primate, right? And you talk about this uh, in your book too, you know, as you drive an electrode down and you're listening and you're listening and you hear some neurons, you hear lots of neurons, but the vast majority of things around that electrode uh, aren't making any noise because they're not spiking. And so, so just say that number again, 10, the 10% number, just to reiterate. Cable studies showing, yeah, so we got 50% of all spikes are sent by 10% of the neurons. Yeah, it's astounding. Yeah. It is. And as I note in the book, it's kind of been hiding in plain sight for a while. So the whole reason that that sort of single electrode recording in your primate works is literally because the neurons are silent. Right. If they weren't silent, you wouldn't be able to see anything. It'd be a because, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But just be the, the electrical signals would be so overwhelming, you wouldn't see the individual spike shape. You would just see this con- this this massive waveform, which would be the superposition of all these of the actual potentials from hundreds of neurons. Um, there would be nothing there to be able to say, okay, this spike is being caused by that stimulus in the world. That you know, it's memory or it's or it's seeing a you know seeing a picture or a grating or whatever. So yeah, I mean, it'd be, they'd worked out in the by the sort of late seventies that the recording electrode of a single recording radius of a single sharp electrode should encompass about two hundred neurons, and yet you were picking up what two? So something weird was going on. And then fast forward to the point where we finally got calcium imaging working properly in in vertebrates, um, and you could video you literally video the neurons and just you stain them for the to know they're they're there. You're looking at them and they're not fluctuating. The, the dye isn't going up and down when you're shining light on it. They're not active at all. So you could just then go and account the fact that there was all these hundreds of neurons there, and only a handful of them were clearly flashing in your in your video, suggesting they were they were active. So yes, yeah, so that's they. So it's it's become apparent that they are very common. That there's these neurons that are doing almost nothing. So when I say so almost nothing, I mean that you know they're firing less than one spike every ten seconds. It's very hard to get a handle on how much nothing they're doing right <laughs> because as i say because most of the way we, we can find them is by by looking at the calcium signals the neurons produce but of course calcium is not really directly related to you know it's an indirect readout of spiking yeah so it's hard to to get a handle on quite how quiet the neurons are we can't because if you fire you know one spike every few minutes you're probably not gonna pick it up yeah, so the calcium the calcium signaling doesn't you don't you don't get individual spikes. I mean, it's in these like windows where you can tell that there's been some activity from the neuron, but you can't tell precisely at the millisecond time scale when a spike happened and how many happened, etc. Yes, you can be pretty confident when it hasn't hasn't been particularly active and sent up a handful of spikes. But you, as you say, you can't get this resolution. So what reason I want to worry about this in the book is I don't so I feel that neuroscience as a whole, particularly theoretical neuroscience, hasn't grappled with this problem at all because we have all these for example in the in the we have these beautiful models of what happens in the in area v1 or the first part of the vision system we have all these beautiful models of how the inputs coming from the retina via the thalamus go into v1 and they're processed through this sort of linear nonlinear process and they to to be uh, the spikes that come out are reflective of this property and this property and this property but of course they only correspond to then the handful of neurons that actually have that activity which is literally a handful of neurons this is an, kind of an old problem too. I mean, this is like Olhausen 
a classic paper is like, what what is V1 doing, right? Because yeah. we have such a small sample of uh, of the actual neurons in V1 that are doing what we want them to be doing, and we can that we can talk about what they're doing. Right. Exactly. So he was. Um, so yeah, that Altausen paper on what is the other eighty five percent of V1 doing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I touched on that a little bit because. He was at this this point where it still wasn't quite clear. So he was writing from a slightly different angle where it wasn't quite clear that there were so many silent neurons. He was pointing out that when we record in, record in V1, then many of the neurons that you record from, you hear this tick, 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 as you say, over the speaker, you hear it on the oscilloscope. When you play them the stimulus, they don't respond to that stimulus. So they're active, but they're not looking at it, apparently, even though they're in V1. Yeah. And those are the neurons that don't go into the paper that you publish because they're not doing the interesting thing that you're looking for. Yeah, Exactly. So in the book, I call them the type two dark neurons. So you have these dark neurons, which are literally neurons that don't fire at all. And all this, this set of neurons are the set of neurons that are, are active, but are dark to the outside world. They don't seem to care about anything that's happening in the outside world. They don't care, respond to the inputs, they don't respond to the outputs. They're just, this. so they take up another, of that um, 10% of neurons that are firing half the spikes. We're not quite sure how many of that 10% belong to this category of neurons that are, mm. that don't care about the outside world. There, as you say, that the old thousand papers suggest actually it's most of the neurons don't care about the outside world even when they're active that's the problem he was pointing out so it's a stacked problem so we have these all these neurons that barely fire at all and all the neurons that do fire most of them don't seem to be responding to the stuff that we're interested in showing the animal um, or making the animal do so we we have great theories for about what does that leave us with three percent of neurons i think so we've got (laughs) (laughs) um great theories of what they're doing you only use three percent of your brain i think that's the new yeah right Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so there's, 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 as I said, so one of the reasons I want to write about this in the book was to, to really point out that there's this terrific um, sort of whole area to explore uh, that we don't yet. And there are good reasons to think, that, you know, why, I mean, there are, there are sort of prosaic reasons why there are dark, these, all these dark neurons. One is just simply energy, as I said. You know, the Creating spikes is really expensive as it's processing them. And also, as we know, the brain is a really metabolically expensive organ, right? So the classic numbers are about 20% of your resting met- metabolic rate is just your brain, which is pretty massive for something that only weighs a handful of kilograms. Mine's only about 5%, but that's yes. a story. <laughs> <laughs> That's what people tell me. I don't know. What <laughs> well, it's just exceptionally efficient, right? It's just, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but so one of, the, one of the reasons they may simply exist is because is one of the reasons that we maybe have this little dark neuron problem it's not that they are always really inactive. It's that just that we never give them anything interesting to do. So this is this simplest argument is this dull world argument. That, and when we put animals in a lab, we ask them to look at really, you know, so the best we do in vision experiments is we show them what we consider a, vi- a video of natural, some sort of natural image, a video, which often turns out to be a film. The Matrix often is a choice. So that's an... Yeah, we used we used uh, the Hobbit movies, the... Uh, uh, yeah. uh, uh, the Tolkien movies. Yeah. Well, at least that's got trees and leaves and mountains and stuff. It's in got it. lots. Yeah. Yeah. They loved it. The monkeys loved it. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so yeah, like the Schneidman and Bialek papers where they record the retina of the salamander and showing it matrix movies as though that was a thing the salamander <laughs> would ever have seen in its entire yeah. life. I mean, they, they should have showed inner space. That, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so, I mean, that, that harkens back. I mean, cause you were talking about, there's this big push right now for ecologically, ethologically valid tasks and that speaks to one potential role of the dark neurons that they just don't care about what we're asking them to do right so there's a real real possibility that we're going to 
um, now people have had this big push for, for recording a lot of spontaneous behavior in particular. Um, and I know some people are working hard on, on sort of fairly naturalistic vision experiments. So I have a, a colleague, Ricardo Storky in Manchester, who's, who's working hard on setting up recordings from retina and, and, the, and the thalamus from freely moving mice in a really rich environment to try and see how what vision processing like looks like when they're actually controlling their own vision for once um and wondering if that's going to be radically different from i mean with a slight caveat of course it's vision in mice so they don't use their eyes for much but, right. uh, but, but yeah, mice are the yeah. animal du jour yeah that's true just to throw another little uh fact in there i mean there's a push these days as well so going back to my graduate school days in non-human primates i mean the other thing is that you know they're sitting in a dark room, they're looking at a screen, showing them pictures or just dots on a screen, right, and having them make decisions. Um, but they're also only moving their eyes. You actually, you know, the classically you fix their head in place so that uh, you can control for head movements. So even that, even even their own behavior is unnatural in that respect, and because they can't freely move their head from side to side. So I mean, there's all sorts of you know caveats to. Uh, uh, you know, reducing as much and controlling for as much as possible in the lab and relating it to brain function. I glossed over something about the dark neurons. So what we didn't talk about was when you include the dark neurons uh, in your, like in a population decoding scheme, when you're trying to decode what information is out in the world just by recording the neurons, if you record from only the neurons that you can hear with your electrode going down, uh, you can decode, you know, fairly well. But if you include the dark neurons, all of a sudden that the decoding becomes much more accurate. The point that you make in the book is the is is pointing toward the importance of uh, the population coding scheme um, relative to like the single neuron or a tiny ensemble of neurons. It is really the population is where the the important information is. Yeah, indeed. So that's, but yeah, that's been a, that's been a I see a bit of our research work too has been looking that's at right. this. And we talked about this last time as well, you know, with the, the rats wandering back to, uh, in the maze, wandering back to start the maze over. That's right. Yeah. 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 Yes, you're right. There's a general idea that we can extract from a population of neurons, not just far more information than there is in individual neurons, but we can extract from neurons that don't appear to be individually responding to the outside world. We can perfectly well extract actually the sort of what's happening in the world. So an example we're just talking about of the rats walking back in the maze, we could extract from the activity in prefrontal cortex whether that rat had just been rewarded, whether it had just chosen to go left or right in the maze, um, and whether at the end of the arm it was had visited, whether the light was on or off. So it's having all this this activity in prefrontal cortex that's remembering these things. And even in when we record, looked at the populations in which individual neurons had no apparent response to any of these properties you can still decode these things perfectly well in fact in some cases 100 percent accurately and you see this this play out in various other areas of the of the brain two people have started looking at this this question of what can we extract from groups of neurons who individually seem to show no tuning whatsoever for the outside world and they're finding well indeed we can decode quite quite rich properties of the world from them so yes it gets a really suggesting that it is the the level of, of information representation we're interested in the brain is really is the population of neurons and then sort of the extreme view of this then that this single neuron tuning is a pure epiphenomenon it just so happens that we <laughs> you have the brain has so many neurons that you're going to find some neurons that have perfect <laughs> tuning to things that you show it but they aren't actually the neurons that are specifically used for this task it is they just happen to have the, the, the tuning that is you're looking for 
one of the things that you, uh, again, harking back to uh, this special 100th episode thing, uh, I think it was your answer to the question, what's holding us back uh, in neuroscience and or AI? And your answer was looking at averaging, you know, as opposed to like sort of single trial neural activity, that averaging tends to mask things. And this kind of is related to this population idea uh, as well. Um, you know, so you, you, like these cognitive functions, they're emergent phenomena, emergent properties of, of this myriad, you know, connections and activity. And there's these, this multiplexing, there's all this noise, it's hopelessly complex, you know, and like you said, there's all these dark neurons and really super low firing and spontaneous neural activity. Uh, and one interpretation of that is that single units then are meaningless, as far as looking at them to extract any information about what's going on. And maybe they're epiphenomenal, uh, as, as you just said. But on the other hand, the other way to look at it is, isn't it insane that we can that we can actually see any modulation at the single neuron level? And often that modulation is striking. And so I, you know, my background is, I did a lot of work in frontal eye field, where you had these single neurons that right before the eye moves in a certain direction into its response field, you can hear it, and it just zips up to a threshold. And this, this is a single neuron pretty reliably that does this trial in and trial out. And, you know, th there is variation. And you do average to tell a story and to compare between trial conditions. But in that case, and there are exceptions to this as well, I mean, you're averaging pretty similar uh, ramp ups like each time. And it is striking then, th that's just another way to look at it, I think, uh, is just to be impressed with how much information you actually can sometimes get uh, just from single neurons. Yeah, you're making a good point that because a lot of what we, particularly when we talk about coding, we often think about the information coming in. So we're talking about senses, of course. Yeah. But if we take a view, and as I have, you know, I work on motor systems too, I've done a lot of work, you know, much of my career working on basal ganglia, looked at working on the brainstem control of the spine. So when you work backwards from the motor neurons in the spine, obviously the motor neurons are sort of your classic, um, these are the neurons that fire spikes, then you move a muscle. So if that neuron fires, that muscle is going to contract. Let's record those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a really, really beautifully simple one. It was spinal motor neurons that gave us the sigmoid in the first place for the AI, AI networks. Um, it's, the, it's them who have the, the sigmoidal discharge curve and cortical neurons don't. They have a more like a nonlinear power law thing. And as you say, as you work, you can work backwards from the spinal motor neurons, or indeed from from the you know for the neurons in the brainstem controlling the eye muscles that are going to move the eyes, and those neurons, of course, are going to be burst firing, and that's going to make that the muscles contract here to move the eye to one side. And you work backwards from them to where they're getting their inputs from, so somewhere else, in this case, in the brainstem, in the eye movement, eventually from the superior colliculus, and you can work backwards and up to the frontal layer fields, and you can see, okay, I can hold this whole chain where I can just get spikes here, spikes here, spikes here, and it moves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's this beautiful causal chain. So movement, you can see this beautiful causal chain, but at the other end, you see this just mess. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that causal chain does get messier and messier as you, as exactly, you yes, receive. Exactly, yeah. yes. So more and more things are, are controlling that, that eye movement eventually. Because there is, obviously, there's some work on population coding in, in spinal cord. So, uh, Runeberg in particular is doing a bunch of work in turtles, recording hundreds of neurons simultaneously in the spinal cord of turtles mm. to show that there really is quite a bit of population coding going on in spinal cord too. The dynamics are quite complex there. You've got balanced activity in the spinal cord. You've got these long tail distributions of activity, just as you see in cortex, because you have these recurrent circuits with the interneurons and the motor neurons. Right. Um, so... There may be, as it will turn out, motor neurons may be the only one that you can go, when that fires, that means something. And backwards from there, it all gets a bit a bit messy. That would be unfortunate. Yeah. but It would. 
But I mean, there's all that work with the, in in uh, motor cortex, right? About u- using like dynamical state spaces to um, infer like when a movement is actually being coded. So it's not a ramp up; it's taking the whole population, looking at the reduction of the variance toward as as you get closer and closer to a movement, and then the variance is eventually just quashed, and you make a movement or whatever. So interesting, different ways to look at it. Yep. So maybe we could get on to. I don't know how much you want to talk about sort of what I consider like the big idea in the brain that you talk about related to spontaneity and evoked uh, from sensory stimulation, neural activity versus this intrinsic spontaneous activity and the role it could play in predictive coding. Do you want to wax poetic about that for a moment? Yeah, sure. We'll touch on that for a little bit. Yes. So in the book, so I, I, uh, so we get to the, end of the journey through the brain and then i asked the reader to reflect back on the journey we just took it's important though that the, the your character gets the cookie right so yeah that's, that's exactly yeah so you win you got it so give it your brain realizes how energy much energy it needs to to, to carry on so obviously it's going to take the cookie right. to give it that um keep up with that 20 percent burn rate in the meeting uh so you got the cookie sit back satisfied as a as the uh star of the book and the and reader simultaneously and then invite you to then think back through the book and think that most of the times when I, when we sort of landed on a neuron on a spike, that neuron was already spiking. I'd already just sent an spike down or we'd seen spikes come back past us the way we just come. And in fact, it appears that most of the spikes in the brain are actually spontaneously created rather than created by the outside world. Either because there are particular classes of neurons that are able to generate their own spikes with no input whatsoever, these kind of pacemaking neurons, which exists mostly in sort of the midbrain and the brainstem. And then in cortex, you have these massive recurrent networks, which is full of feedback loops. So you give it enough input and that, that activity will be sustained forever as it reverberates around and around and around uh, in these feedback loops. So it appears that yeah, most of the spikes that we, we come across are not created by, in this case, the world, the seeing the office in front of us, seeing this uh, cookie in a box on a desk in front of you, that's kind of the feed forward evoke stuff that's appearing. Uh, and that's having an effect, but it's not clear what effect that is. So the idea floated in the book is really that what most of those spontaneous spikes are doing is they're solving the problem that spikes for all their wonderfulness are kind of a slow way of processing information. And actually, um, we need to, to make decisions fast because making decisions slowly, uh, particularly in most niches that animals live in, um, is a way of getting eaten or uh, failing to survive long enough to reproduce. So what I'm arguing in the book is that what the spontaneous activity is there for is to solve this speed limit problem by, by essentially it's predicting what the incoming spike should already be. So there also exists sort of predictive processing accounts of the brain, which are fairly sort of high-level ideas of what the brain should be doing, sort of normative models of in an ideal world, the brain should be doing this. But when we look going in down into the details of the spikes, we can see that there's this rich, dynamical brain waiting there to be to act as this predictive machine. So that these spontaneous spikes then rotating around are so they give your easy example is, is always always is vision are then they're predicting what should be coming from the from the retina so mm-hmm. the spikes the retina is sending up into the brain are standing for various edges and corners and uh parts of the visual world elementary elements of the world we can see before us so in the in the book example is the edges of the box the top of the cookie all those edges of the desk that kind of thing but of course your your eye has already swept past this scene so your brain already has a really good idea of what it is that you're looking at so it's able to predict that there's an object on there which is a sort of cookie shape a box shape 
And that information is being fed backwards from the object areas in spikes towards the early visual system bits to meet up with the spikes coming from the retina to essentially see whether they agree or disagree. And all, you need to, all the information needs to come forward then, just like in predictive processing counts, is whether there is a, something is wrong with that view, to change that view. And then that fits, that sort of account conceptually fits beautifully with the ideas. We take this sort of dynamical view of the brain, that if this spontaneous activity is all this, these ongoing dynamics, then all the incoming spikes can do is change those ongoing dynamics. They can just prod those into a different shape. It can't really drive them forward into a complete, you know, entrain them to it to this itself. It's not like a feed-forward network. All it can do is just take this ongoing activity swashing around the brain and gently move into a different different trajectory. So from that point of view, it makes sense then that the information coming in from, from your various senses, all it's doing is prodding ongoing activity into a different state, saying, if this is wrong or this is right, if it's wrong, prod it up to something which is a bit, bit closer to what's going on in the world. And it's the difference that makes a difference. Yes. Yeah. It struck me that, or it strikes me just now, I mean, there, so there are ways to, you know, go, go into sim- sensory deprivation so that you're not getting um, incoming light, incoming visual signals. I mean, you still get uh, sort of proprioceptive signals from your body, I suppose. But it, what is the way to cut off the predictive aspect? I mean, I, you know, the, the, the top-down aspect. There aren't experimental conditions where you can only evoke sensory activity. I mean, that's essentially turning off your brain uh, if, if the predictive processing uh, account is right. And that there just wouldn't be a condition uh, in which you could do that, I suppose. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Yes. As you say, there is there are obviously there are a number of experimental paradigms which try and replicate that sort of sensory deprivation experience, right? Those try and um, try and make uh, make normal humans hallucinate stuff. So there's like auditory hallucination paradigms where you uh, play a tone that's barely the perception of their hearing. You also regulate it so the tone is at a, at an amp volume that they can barely hear. Flash a light at the same time as that tone. And then keep flashing the lights. Occasionally, you don't actually play the tone and ask them to report when the tone is being played. And obviously, normal people will happily report hearing the tone a whole bunch of times that it was never there. So they're able to, you can induce auditory hallucinations because they're, they're happily predicting that the tone is there when it is not. So they're, you know, something in their brain has said, yeah, there was a, there was a sound. And clearly, there has been no feed forward input whatsoever. But you're right, that it's, it would be somewhat more complicated to, to shut off the, the backward flowing yeah. information. <laughs> Although one one would say, given the rate that neuroscience is systems neuroscience in, in you know invertebrates is going at the moment, one wouldn't say it's never going to be impossible. One could yeah. imagine that if we end up roughly agreeing this you know, on this this view of uh, if we're doing object recognition from top down for predictive processing count, and we have a fairly good idea of where in the sort of temporal lobe particular object types are represented. Um, with a sufficiently powerful optogenetic approach, you could, in theory, shut that off that top level and see whether that's going to affect uh, the perception of, and particularly the generalization of those kind of objects, I guess. Because obviously the idea being that you're, you're feeding back, um, whether, it's, whether it's exactly that object you're looking, you think you're looking at. So say you were, I mean, maybe it was something like, say you keep being exposed to simple squares, right? Mm-hmm. And so that you're expecting that, that part of the, the brain to be able to and predicting squares you shut off that bit and but show it something which is a, like a, a rectangle or some smoothed square um something which is your brain would, would say top down is not what the thing you've been looking at but top up 
has many properties of a square, right? So maybe your 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 decision there would be there. That's definitely a square. When the actual response is supposed to be, it's it's not a square because it's it's morphed from the shape that it's uh, you've been shown over and over again. Yeah. So maybe yeah, maybe there will be a way of that require a lot of obviously of predicting where you know where the brain is storing this information. But approaches like Jim DeCarlo's, where he's training neural networks, deep neural networks, to do um, sort of image recognition, finding the sort of responses, response units on the top layer of that of that deep neural network, and then finding those back in V4 and, and, and the temporal lobe. Yeah. Then, if you could then go into the you know go in and turn those off um, specifically, then you would have a really powerful uh, way of testing the backwards flow of information in the actual brain. Mark, this is uh, so. Uh, this is like wrapping up uh, our, our discussion about the book. Hopefully, this has given people uh, a lot of different flavors of what you talk about in the book. I, you know, obviously, there's a ton more uh, in in the book, but uh, it's really enjoyable. The joy of your writing also is just very apparent, and it makes for a really fun read. So, nice job again on the book, and I hope people check it out. Cool. Thank you very much, Paul. All right, I have just three questions, three simple questions mm. to uh, to end up on here. One, and the the background here is that you're really a theorist, I suppose, although you work with plenty of experimental data, but you do it in the guise of, in, in, in the steed of theory. And that's kind of, maybe that's irrelevant to the question, but the question is, what's what's one of the best scientific moments that you've had? Can you think back, you know, is there something that stands out in your mind? Yeah, there's been been a few. Let me think. So one, that's uh, good to explain. So actually one, yeah, so I... I now tell the world that what we do is a kind of a neural data science, right? So we are much of we do is heavily theory informed, and we're interested then in, in testing theories uh, using you know, computational methods on data. The byline of your lab on your lab website, I think, is uh, we're a neural data lab. Is that what? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Um, so in that context, so we had one of my sort of favorite moments. So obviously, I'm working quite a lot on the cease like a plisia. Uh, with uh, Bill Frost in Chicago and his grad student, Angela Bruno. Um, and they have this fantastic setup where they're doing this voltage-sensitive dye imaging of the Aplysia's motor system. So they can record uh, about 10% of the neurons in the motor system simultaneously and get it at spike resolution. So it has, it marries the, the advantages of calcium imaging where you can see each of the individual neurons, you know where they yeah. are. Yeah. Um, but it's it's um, voltage imaging and it's at extremely high rates so you can see all the individual spikes you actually touch on this in the book a little bit the idea of the voltage uh, the future of spike yes. recordings yeah because I have having spent like, um, sort of now I am oh blimey it's now what seven eight years working on this system with them <laughs> um, the voltage imaging is obviously it's just, it's just fantastic I understand all the, there's all the technical limitations why it can't work so well in vertebrates but in the last mm-hmm. two years there's been this dramatic improvement in the in the sort of both the genetically encoded and voltage sensors and the dyes that are used in vertebrates mm. to the extent there's been a raft of nature and science papers in the last last year and a half showing that this this is really is coming of age now you can really record for you know a decent amount of time individual neurons voltage image of them in hippocampus and cortex in mice and see the individual spikes and with fingers crossed and a good you know squinting at it you can just about see occasionally the sort of potentials of the inputs coming in to the soma so that's so to me that's going to be the big part of the future. Having worked on this data in an invertebrate where the neurons are enormous, so that it really works beautifully, um, you know, if, if, if it really pans out on this trajectory, then we're going to be seeing voltage imaging everywhere. I think. So yeah. So what was the moment? 
yeah, it was was I mean not just once more moment was just seeing this data for the first time because it was just yeah. it's just yeah. glorious going. So I have all these spikes, from all these neurons, and we know it's most of the motor system. It's like I, instead of seeing, you know, um, uh, recording from court for from prefrontal four cortex and a rodent, which is just going to be. Um, 0.0000001% of the neurons just in that region of prefrontal cortex. It's like, yeah, this is almost yeah. everything. I think the, re- the big moment for me was just, uh, really just, so I really deep interested in dynamical systems. So we had this, I did this piece of work where I was trying to figure out how do I show, particularly to the satisfaction of, you know, it just my, my collaborators who are experimentalists, they're not, you know, you know computational people. How do I show to their satisfaction? This is, this is an attractor. This the system they're looking at is an attractor. Uh-huh. Make it meaningful for them. Yeah. So they go instead of just going, "Oh yeah, that's you know buzzword." Um, <laughs> that this actually is an, a useful thing to know and a useful thing to be able to understand about the system. So the whole piece of work, where, yes, the recording these multiple recordings from, from from recordings were from three separate recordings from each animal of this system being evoked to to run away to escape. Um, I was able to show them that these population dynamics. Fitted all the all the criteria of a of an attractor, particularly a, a spiral attractor. So an attractor where the dynamics start always um, so, you know, from the same spontaneous activity when it's evoked, it goes up and falls ne- nicely onto the same trajectory each time, and that trajectory is a spiral. So it, it's its amplitude is you know, it's cycling around, but the amplitude is getting smaller and smaller and smaller as it goes on, mm-hmm. kind of coming back towards the starting state, but never quite gets there. And that was true. Uh, in every recording. So no matter how noisy, particularly what was beautiful bit was no matter how noisy the recording was, how much like they went, you don't want this, it's a really bad one. I said, no, no, give it to me. And I'll show you that it's there. So I can show them that even these recordings where almost none of the neurons were, were firing this beautiful periodic burst, you could still see underneath there, there was this spiral thing happening in the population. It was just obviously really noisy because the preparation was, you know, whatever had gone wrong with it. And then um, what's particularly lovely then is because they had, had three recordings from the same animal, you could show that they, they each of the three ended up on the same trajectory each time. They were they converged. They were genuinely attracting. And by some beautiful accident, because of this, this motor system it ha- has in it various gabbrosic interneurons, particularly one massive one occasionally fires randomly um, in this preparation, there are pauses in the ongoing activities. You can see sort of all these neurons are firing away and there's this pause where some other neurons start firing and it restarts again. Uh-huh. So you get to, over and over, get to see the same same trajectories. Yeah, so you get to see some trajectories, but also when this neuron fires, it means that it perturbs the activity away from what it was been doing. And I can show every time it perturbed it, it came right back to where it was supposed to be. Yeah. So it had it met all the criteria of what you want an attractor to be. And so it happened, you know, the spiral in five or six dimensions instead of this hundred and... 10, 200 neurons, whatever it was. And so, yeah. So one, it was showing that, yes, I have shown to even my satisfaction, which is quite hard, that this thing is generally a spiral attractor. This is a useful description of this system. Mm-hmm. That means that we understand how it works because you poke it and it jumps into this state and that state is literally just driving the crawling. Every loop around this spiral is one one full loop of the crawl where the animal puts its head forward and pulls itself back behind. And then each... Uh, and the, pro- the parameters of the spiral, so essentially how wide each of the spiral is, how fast it goes around it, how quickly it goes back to the start, are properties of the crawl. So you could say easily say this: these three pr- parameters should probably mm. control three separate parts of the crawling. That's cool. Which would be you know, predictions to go and go and do in further experiments. So, how were they affected by this? You finally got this across to them, like that it was, that it was important, and did it sink in? Is that what the <laughs> 
Yeah, I think I think yes. I think it sunk into it. <laughs> they finally saw the value of the dynamical uh, of the attractor as as a as a tool of explanation. Yes, that is this low dimensional thing that we can describe it in quantitative detail. So now that means that when we manipulate the system, we can describe those manipulations in terms of that attractor and make predictions about what direction it should move. That's so cool. for example, when we put neuromodulators on the system, we already know what those neuromodulators do to the behavior. So they must do a particular thing to the, to the dynamics of the spiral attractor. That's awesome. Sorry to bring you up and then I'm going to take you down. But what about some time that some, some failure that you've had or some, uh, you know, disil- disillusionment that you've felt in your career uh, and then how you got got through it. This is supposed to be, you know, to, for for people struggling in their graduate school days, or you know, this is supposed to uh, let them feel like, oh, this this happens to everybody. So that's why I'm asking you the question, not to bring you down. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no, it's a fair question. Obviously, there've been a few. So there, <laughs> but particularly, I'll talk about the PhD one because that's the one I'm obviously most relevant. I it's the one I talk about most for the for the okay. when I give talks to early career researchers to talk about this one. So my PhD was on building um, computational models of the basal ganglia. And inside that circuit, there is um, there's a feedback loop between two structures, one called the subthalamic nucleus, one called the globus pallidus. And it's a, it's, a, it's a negative feedback loop. So you have one positive connection, one negative connection. Right? So you have this beautiful negative feedback loop, which is self-stabilizing because you know, as soon as one, if you uh, drive the excitation up, then you get more inhibition. So it drives, turns down the excitation. You drive the inhibition up, you move the excitation, the inhibition goes down. So it's this you know, nice, something that engineers love to see in a system is this beautiful right. yeah, yeah. negative feedback loop. So I obviously built a bunch of different models with this this thing in. And it was after my f- funding had run out on the on the PhD. Remember, it's a UK PhD, so it was three years of funding. And I'd gone, I was supposed to be handing in. So I was writing up and some results and checking the code of one of the main models I was using. Uh-oh. And I had discovered that in my code, I had hard coded the connection sign and I had put them as both positive. Oh. So my model had this blowing up feedback, citation feedback looping, so this negative feedback loop. So all the results of, I think, oh, two chapters had to go in the bin oh. of the five chapter thesis after, a, um, you know, after my funding had finished. Simple coding error. Yeah, so a simple coding error that has now formed the basis of how I approach coding. Oh, I bet. How did you get over it? I mean, did you just move on? And uh, Well, I guess that's, I mean, obviously lesson learned, but it must have been pretty devastating. Yeah, so it was really, it was really hard for, for uh, I remember it being, yeah, a week of, of being quite, <laughs> quite miserable about this. But realizing that, okay, because I was thinking, thinking back about how much time I had spent in building these models and how long it had taken but I t- it was realizing, well, I think that's when I really realized about that when most of the time when you're doing science, all the time it's taken up when you don't know what you're doing. So you spend all this time, you don't know how, what you want to do next. How are you going to measure this thing? How are you going to make this thing work? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? And then well, what I had to do now was do it the second time. I knew how everything worked. I'd done all the code. All I had to do was, I'd done all the graphs even. All I had to do was reproduce. Yeah. The, you know, do the, redo the simulations with the right thing, check all the results. I had all the analysis all set up. All I really needed to know was, did it make a big difference to the results? So that really helped me sort of focus then. So I could obviously have a nice, very structured to-do list of fix that and run this, 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 you know, over and over again, the list of things to do, and then just grind through it. So that's that's what I did. So we fixed the code, re-ran it all, checked everything, rewrote two chapters of the thesis. 
then as it turned out that actually that momentum meant I finished the thesis writing really fast because I'd written worked so hard to fix this problem that I then finished wrote the next two chapters and wrote the discussion and it was done. I was like, yeah. okay, cool. So it was it was a as well as a coding lesson, yeah, it was also um, a lesson in thinking, realizing that uh, much of yeah, what you know, the, what you think is a time sink, time sink in science is often about um, yeah, when you just just finding your way. But if you know what you're doing, uh, moment to moment, then it, you can get through it much faster. Doesn't that does that happen? Does that continue to happen uh, throughout your career? Like the for me in my kind of short career, that continued to happen where I realized the the entirety of the past three years. I had no idea what I was doing and was building up to get to the point where I'm right now. And then a couple of years down the road, I realized I didn't have any idea what I was doing, but was very valuable to getting to the point where I know right now what, what I'm doing, you know, and that, that recurred over and over. Does that keep going? <laughs> to an extent, yeah. Yeah. You keep, you keep reevaluating, um, you know, particularly reevaluating re- 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 your sort of priorities and the way you're approaching certain projects and keep refreshing the must be a better way of doing this and spending like you know, six months hacking about a couple of graphs. So nothing is really sunken cost in that respect or, or a lot, most of what you're actually doing that may feel like sunken cost, I suppose, isn't, is, is valuable in retrospect. Yeah, it often is, yeah. yeah. Lastly, uh, Mark, what, would you, what, what would you do differently if you had to, or maybe not even necessarily what would you do differently, but if you had to start your career over, not back then, but now, if you were starting a, as a, you know, thinking about going going to graduate school or early in your graduate uh, school career, what would you do, you know, differently, if anything, or how would you proceed? A, f- a very practical answer to that question, which is I would take some some serious courses in linear algebra. Oh, I've, I've gotten that answer too. Yeah, that's, I, yeah. I think that as well. Yeah. Because I, so yeah, so I'm a, I'm a computational neuroscientist who feels a bit of an imposter because my math is terrible. Right? So I, <laughs> um, so, I mean, my undergraduate degree was in cognitive science. So we did we did some we did discrete maths, we did a lot of graph theory and yeah. logic and stuff. Um, and I did I took some some you know uh, undergrad classes in calculus when I started my PhD, but I didn't touch linear algebra. So I hadn't done anything with you know, vectors. I did I finished you know did last at school. So not being able to pry open the box of the whole matrix algebra toolkit, even the linear bit, as has proven challenging particularly we're obviously doing a lot of data analysis and, and working endlessly now with with dimension reduction techniques that are beautifully simple written out as, as linear algebra trying to explain them any other way is a nightmare yeah. just go no it's just, just the matrix decomposed like this oh okay i see that <laughs> yeah so yes so prosaically yeah linear algebra i think the earlier you get that the better too especially just because it's uh it's really counter not counterintuitive it, it's hard to intuitively grasp i think it really takes a lot of time swimming in that world to feel comfortable with it in my experience anyway. And I'm not, not, I'm not even saying that I'm comfortable. Just I'm, I'm to the point where I can see, Oh, okay. That could become comfortable. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, thanks Mark. So I, you know, good luck uh, with the book. Congratulations on, I know it's see now it's late cause it's like a year, a year uh, delayed congratulations, but you're going to be hearing this a lot, uh, I suppose. And uh, if this, so this episode should air, the book will be out. So everyone should, should run and grab it and grab hold of the spike with Mark on your back, whispering sweet nothings about brains in your ear as you, as you travel through the brain. So thanks for spending the time with me, Mark, and uh, continued success, man. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. 
you can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stare